0: Welcome to Worldview from the Irish Times. I'm Dennis Staunton. Today, Ukraine's president has fled and the former opposition is in control in Kiev. But can the country stay together? And as European politicians limber up from May's European Parliament elections, is the Parliament poised for a constitutional land grab? But we start in Ukraine, where President Viktor Yanukovych's whereabouts remain unknown after he fled Kiev following increasingly violent clashes between police and opposition demonstrators. Yanukovych was last seen in Balaclava, in the southern region of Crimea, which remains a pro-Moscow stronghold in defiance of the Western-leaning forces that have gained the upper hand in the capital. Our correspondent Dan McLaughlin joins us on the line from Crimea, and I'm joined here in studio by Irish Times foreign policy editor Paddy Smith. Dan, what do we know about Yanukovych's movements?
1: Well, we do know that he was last seen very late on Sunday night, as you mentioned, close to Balaclava on the... Uh, Black Sea coast of Ukraine in Crimea. Um, uh, The interim uh, interior minister in Kiev released quite a detailed chronology of of, um, uh, Yanukovych's movements after he fled Kiev on Friday night. He said that he left uh, by helicopter with his national security advisor, uh, that's Andriy Kluyev, and uh, bodyguards, and flew from Kiev to uh, Kharkiv in the east of the country on Saturday. Uh, He was there on Saturday, arrived on Friday night, stayed there Saturday, moved on on Saturday to um, Donetsk, which is his home region. He was born there, and he was governor of the Donetsk region for a while before moving into national politics. Um, The interior minister says that he he actually tried to leave on a private jet, two private jets uh, tried to leave, uh, one with Yanukovych and Kluyev and bodyguards. And uh, the border guards in Donetsk prevented those planes leaving. So uh, the two men and their bodyguards got into cars, drove to Crimea, and then on Sunday, um, when we we last know of his whereabouts, close to Balaclava, he split with a group of his bodyguards, uh, apparently turned off his mobile phones and other forms of communication, and disappeared. Um, I should bring you up to date on a report that we're just getting now that apparently Kluyev, the national security advisor and a very, very close ally of Yanukovych's, has apparently been uh, captured and shot in the process. Um, His spokesman, Kluyev's spokesman, is saying that uh, he has been shot and injured, um, but that he was actually found at his residence outside Kiev. Um, So that's unclear. This is just breaking news, and it's not confirmed. But it's coming from... Solid sources in Ukraine who are actually citing Kluyev's spokesman, so that will be cleared up hopefully in the hours ahead. Um, we're also getting a report from uh, Kluyev's spokesman that Kluyev actually claims that he actually only met Yanukovych in Crimea to hand in his resignation, um, and that he wasn't actually fleeing with the former president. But, um, but as saying- with many. As with many things in Ukraine at the moment, this is all up in the air, and we will hopefully get a clearer picture in the coming hours.
0: But what is clear is that uh, for Yanukovych, you, the Ukraine is an increasingly uncomfortable place to be. Now, if he is in Crimea, obviously the uh, you've got the Black Sea coast, and you have uh, the Russian naval naval base at Sevastopol there. Is this a good? If you were in his position, would you find yourself in a better position in Crimea to get out of the country to get to Russia by sea? And is it likely that he? he would receive a welcome if he does go to Russia?
1: Well, it would be absolutely the obvious escape route. Um, Even uh, eastern Ukraine, the area around Donetsk and Kharkiv, which was considered his stronghold for a long time, that now seems to be at least in part hostile to him. Um, He did try to leave from Donetsk Airport and was turned back, we hear. Uh, Crimea is is very different to the rest of Ukraine, even to eastern Ukraine, in that it's extremely Russian, even ethnically Russian. The majority of the population here is Russian. And they look very, very, in a very, very hostile way on events in Kiev. Um, If Yanukovych did want to get away, it would make sense to come to Crimea. He could easily get to the naval base, the Russian naval base. He could easily leave, as you mentioned, by boat, to Russia, if necessary. Um, so, uh, and would he be if, welcomed if he get
0: if he got to Russia? Is, is it well, like that's to...
1: another that's another question. I mean, Russia has been his 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 strongest ally as the um, the, the the protests against him have intensified. Um, but there is certainly no great love lost between uh, Yanukovych and Putin. They never really got on. Um, So on a personal level, he wouldn't necessarily be welcome, but he doesn't really have many other options. Russia may be unwilling to take in Yanukovych now and to be really uh, associated with him and to be seen as offering him refuge. When we look at coverage on uh, Russian state television, which uh, basically propagates the Kremlin's line, the coverage of, of how Yanukovych handled the crisis has been absolutely damning in the last few days. So they may look to a third country, somewhere perhaps like Belarus, uh, where he could go, um, but at the moment it's uh, it's absolutely unclear where he is, uh, and we really don't see anywhere where he would be made particularly welcome in the region.
0: Paddy, the rhetoric surrounding Ukraine sometimes looks or sounds like an old-fashioned Cold War tussle between Russia and the Western powers. Are there interests uh, compatible at all where Ukraine is concerned? Uh,
2: they, their interests are, are quite different, and and indeed there are, there are many Russians who believe... Uh, that the Ukraine should never have been allowed to to get its independence, and and this is a sort of legacy of of the cold cold war years. And the Russians are are enormously worried at the possibility of of um, uh, NATO offering uh, Ukraine uh, a new democratic Ukraine offering it membership of, of NATO. And it, it's certainly the case that if that happened, the the there would be a very very serious escalation in in uh, the diplomatic uh, language. Uh, by by the Russians and possibly attempts by Russia to to destabilise the situation further in inside inside Ukraine, but it, it is being argued by the Europeans in particular that there is, this is not a zero sum game, that it is quite possible for Ukraine to choose both Europe and Russia as as allies, uh, to build alliances with both to create a sort of bridge between the two. Great economies of of the, of the European Union and the Eurasian Union, which Russia is trying to create, uh, Russia is, is still not convinced by that, and they're not willing to take the arguments. And they're they've also refused up till now, and they're showing no sign whatever of recognising the new um, interim government in, in, in the Ukraine.
0: And what is the, union, the European Union's interest in Ukraine? Uh, this whole crisis or the, 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 the demonstrations in December were triggered by Yanukovych's walking away from this EU association agreement. But why was Europe keen to
2: establish an association agreement with them in the first place? Well, it has to be said, a slightly mixed feelings. I mean, there's a lot of of rhetoric about eventual uh, Ukrainian uh, membership of the European Union. And actually, the European Union uh, is not enthusiastic about that. But it has built up over the years a series of uh, agreements, um, association agreements with what are called... as a sort of buffer between russia and and itself a sort of uh, zone of where where the economies can begin to to integrate and uh, zones of of stability so from a strategic point of view uh, th- this has been part of a, of a big uh, european picture in terms of of uh, um, eastern europe in- and that agreement
0: that uh, that Yanukovych walked away from is that still available for the Ukrainians?
2: Well, the the, the Europeans say it's it very much uh, is still there, uh, and they're enthusiastic about it. But they're saying that there's no reason why the, the the Russians shouldn't also honour their commitment to loans which they've started giving the the Ukraine, uh, and the hope is that they'll do that. Uh, the the IMF is key player in all of this because the loans that it's suspended. Uh, a couple of years ago to to the Ukraine, are absolutely crucial to, to getting the economy back on its feet.
0: Dan, uh, both Angela Merkel and Vladimir Putin have insisted that the territorial integrity of Ukraine is sacrosanct. But from where you are, do people there actually feel as if the country
1: can stay together? People are certainly optimistic in Kiev, but they're also realistic and they see Putin as being hostile Uh, very hostile to the idea of a solid, stable, uh, hopefully increasingly prosperous and Western-orientated Ukraine. Um, They feel that he did everything possible in terms of putting pressure on the Ukrainian uh, government and administration of President Yanukovych not to sign that that, uh, EU association agreement. And they feel that now he will do whatever he can through uh, Russian-oriented politicians in Ukraine to try and um, keep the country unstable. They look back at the example of Georgia back in 2008, and they, they uh, heard yesterday Russian Prime Minister Dmitry Medvedev saying that Russia didn't recognize legitimacy of the new authorities in Kiev, and that it was also very worried for the safety of its citizens, of Russian citizens in Ukraine. And if we think back to 2008, that is how Russia justified intervention in Georgia, it said that Russian passport holders were in danger in South Ossetia and Abkhazia, and Russia sent in the troops. Russia now recognizes those two regions as independent states, and it has thousands of troops based in each one. That is why at the moment there is great focus on Crimea and what will happen there, because Russia has already given out passports to um, several thousand uh, ethnic Russians here in Crimea, and this is the area that is considered the potential flashpoint if Russia does try to take that kind of action now.
0: And would the ethnic Russians who live there in Crimea, would they welcome a Russian intervention?
1: Many of them would. Um, I'm in the, the administrative capital of, of uh, Crimea today. It's a town called Simferopol, and I've just been out walking around. And outside the um, the local parliament building, we've got hundreds of people rallying, calling on the the local authorities uh, to make, uh, at the very least, a very very strong statement against what's another very 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 strong statement against what's happened in Kiev, and to. Uh, strengthen uh, ties with Russia. Some of them want to actually join Russia. Others want to make sure that Russia acts as some kind of guarantor of the uh, safety and security of the Russian-speaking population in Crimea. Just across town here in Simferopol, we've got another demonstration taking place of the, the Crimean Tatar population. Um, and they are very, very scared um, that uh, Russia will intervene here and that their rights will be curtailed here. They've been supporting the opposition movement. So we do have tensions building up here in Crimea in lots of different ways.
0: And finally, Dan, now that Yanukovych appears to be out of the picture, is there any sign of political leadership emerging for that Eastern pro-Russian-oriented population in Ukraine? They
1: asked. Struggling really for for uh, a key characters to come through in Ukraine and uh, and defend the uh, the rights of Russian speakers, which they see as being somewhat threatened now. Um, today actually marks the start of the presidential election campaign. Pre- uh, elections have been called for May the 25th, and they've already kicked off today. Um, uh, Vitaly Klitschko former heavyweight world boxing champion, now a, a liberal opposition party leader, has said that he will run. There is speculation that uh, former Prime Minister Yulia Tymoshenko will run, um, but she hasn't confirmed that yet. She was released from um, from 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 prison, where she was actually serving a, 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 a jail sentence, but she was in hospital for treatment. She was released on Saturday, but she hasn't confirmed it yet. From the eastern part of, of Ukraine, we have the governor of the Kharkiv region, a man called Mikhail Dobkin, who said that he will run, and he is the, the, the figure that is really pushing himself forward as defender of Russian speakers in eastern Ukraine at the moment. We'll see how much support he has. We'll see how, how he, if he can develop any kind of momentum leading up to the elections. But he is also a figure that is widely hated across central and western Ukraine and is effectively seen as a puppet of Moscow.
0: Dan McLaughlin in Crimea, thank you. The centre-right European People's Party, the largest group in the European Parliament, meets in Dublin next week for a congress that's expected to choose its leading candidate for the European elections in May. The centre-left Socialist Group has already chosen the European Parliament's president, Martin Schulz, as its leading candidate, and the Liberals have picked the former Belgian Prime Minister, Guy Verhofstadt. The idea is that these candidates should be their party's nominees for the next president of the European Commission, who will be chosen by EU leaders at a summit after the elections. But will the leaders take any notice? And will these leading figures do anything to boost turnout in the European elections which has been falling for years? To discuss all this, I'm joined from Brussels by our European correspondent Suzanne Lynch and here in studio by political correspondent Harry McGee and foreign policy editor Paddy Smith, who's still with me here. Suzanne, who will be the European People's Party candidate?
3: Yes, well, as you said there, um, next week the summit takes place in Dublin and this is the very first time this kind of process is going to get underway. Um, A lot of names in in the hat here. Um, Some of the favourites include Jean-Claude Juncker and the former Prime Minister of Latvia. Both of these candidates are recently out of a job. They were both uh, Prime Ministers of the country until quite recently. Um, And um, both are are very interested in in the position. Enda Kenny's name was mentioned early on in the race, um, but he seems to have um, suggested that he's not interested in, in the position at this point. Um, so the EPP group represents the biggest political grouping in the Parliament. So as a result, it's got some of these kind of heavy hitter names. Um, whereas with the S&D group, the second largest party in the European Parliament, and they just have they they've rallied around one candidate. But for the EPP, it's just that's right. It, it's it's. Slightly more difficult because of the amount of people involved and and the high profile nature of the candidate
0: And, And that presumably is one of the problems that if you're a sitting Prime Minister like Enda Kenny or whoever, you're not really wanting to put your name out there in advance just in case you don't get it
3: Yes, I mean there's a lot of resistance to this new plan and um, the European Parliament have pushed it, pushed it they've said this is about in, you know increasing the democratic accountability of the European Parliament but cynics here in Brussels say well it's easy for the for the socialist party because they've only got one candidate it's a lot more difficult for the EPP I mean, a lot of member states here are very resistant to it. Angela Merkel is on the record uh, saying that it's not necessarily going to be the candidate, and Britain. I was talking to uh, UK officials, and they're they're pretty furious about it they feel that they do not want to be bullied, as they say, into a candidate because the European Parliament wants it that way. And they're worried that this process will will um, lead to a partisan commission president, that it will lead to a whole politicisation of the process. So really the, the question is, when it comes to it, OK, the EPP may pick their candidate next week, but if somebody better came along, um, say, for example, Christine Lagarde, they will probably be prepared um, to ditch the candidate at the last moment, if you like.
0: Patty, you've been writing about this in the context of the struggle between the European institutions that's been going on for years, is this what we're seeing? Is it essentially an attempt by the Parliament to grab more power?
2: Well, in a sense, yes. uh, Over over a number of elections, the Parliament has increasingly encroached on the uh, rights of the of the of the council of ministers they've insisted for example on vetting commissioners in much more um, detailed way but also throwing some of them out and forcing the council of ministers to to go back and get other commissioners and this is this is about a continuation of of that process of the parliament saying we are actually the voice of the people and we want to make the commission a democratically uh, accountable body and they've bounced or are in the process of bouncing the EU leaders into uh, accepting this new um, uh, method of appointing the head of the Commission. Now, the treaty says uh, that the, com- the Council must take account of the views of the Parliament. That has been interpreted by Martin Schulz, who is the socialist candidate, as as uh, an opportunity for him to uh, do effectively what some of these called a, a land grab, uh, the Parliament pushing out the boat a bit. But it's not just about about the issue of extra powers. It's also about the concern that MEPs have about the legitimacy, the perceived legitimacy of of, uh, of the parliament. The the fact that um, voters are not engaged with parliament elections and. Uh, They regard it as what political scientists call a second-order election. These are elections in which you're not actually electing a government. What you're doing is you're electing something else. And Voters in the past have used it to kick their own governments, basically. They've used it to elect um, fringe candidates or one-issue candidates. And MEPs from the mainstream parties are worried that this is happening.
0: And this is the paradox, of course, that as the parliament has become more powerful the turnout in each European Parliament election has been going down?
2: Yeah, it's it's gone down since 79, from 62 to 43% throughout the European Union. Now the European Union has expanded in that time. And the interesting thing is that the newer countries who have come who've come in have actually got lower turnouts than than the older countries. But on average three percent per per election, the, the turnout has 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 gone down. And this is an attempt to say, these mean something. The You will actually see um, a, a result to your uh, vote, uh, the the leader of, of the Commission. And, and it's about politicising the Commission, which is one of the things that the Parliament has been very concerned to do.
0: Now, Suzanne uh, is a little sceptical, and she seems to think that actually even if they choose somebody, that the EPP might just actually ditch them at the last minute and put in somebody better. Do you think they'd get away with
2: that? Well, I think it depends entirely on the turnout. I think if if the this gambit by Schultz and the parliament succeeds in pushing up average turnout across across the European Union, uh, it'll be much more difficult for for the leaders of the European Union to say actually, well, uh, we're going to do, we're going to make the decision ourselves. It's our prerogative. You you can go to hell. If they can push the the turnout up, and that's a very big if because Uh, I'm not convinced, certainly, that uh, this is going to make the election that much more interesting. Uh, There will be parliamentary, uh, presidential debates, for example, between Schultz and and Juncker, who is likely to be the EPP candidate. Uh, But I I can't really see that as a great turn-on to to voters. Well, Harry, here in Ireland, do you think it's going to be a big turn-on to voters?
4: Uh, I don't think so. I think the statistic that Paddy uh, related there uh, a moment ago about uh, a succeeding elections a continuing fall fall uh, or a continuing lowering of turnout is very telling indeed there is a sense of disengagement we hear about it all the time but I, I, I think that this may be an attempt to to address it but in my own estimation it's not going to be sufficient I think there is a distance between the voter here and what's happening in Brussels and it really hasn't been helped by the way in which the new constituencies have been configured I think that the Dublin one, has a logic to it because it's it's contained within a geographical entity. But you look if you look at the other two, we have a smorgasbord of of counties with no real uh, connection to each other, which have essentially been lumped together uh, heterogeneously. And I think that this pattern of declining turnout that's been evident since 1979 may not be arrested uh, when people go to the polls on the 23rd of
0: May. And, and so, if we look at the landscape from this distance out. How does it look from the, the point of view now that the candidates have mostly been selected?
4: Well, as it happened, here's a crystal ball I prepared earlier, Dennis, and let's have a look into it to see what we see. Um, of course, the caveat here is that we're still two, out, two months out from the election, so um, my predictions uh, as of now uh, may stand to be corrected. I think in in um, I think in, in, if you look at the South constituency, which is a four-seater, which is in a, a, a South Leinster and Monster, there are two relative certainties and they are Brian Crowley uh from from Fianna Fáil who has won every election he has stood in and is very much identified with Europe. I think that he is a shoe in as is Sean Kelly, the former president of the GAA, who has a high profile as as an MEP. The other two seats, the fate of them uh, is is very uncertain and it will come down to uh, a fight between Fine Gael and its second candidate, uh, perhaps the Sinn Féin candidate, Léonie Riada, a daughter of Sean or Sinn Féin haven't done as well in the South as they have done in other constituencies and their, their uh, support is lower in percentage terms there than it is, for example, in Dublin or in the northern end of the uh, state. But I, I think that she could possibly squeeze in. There's a Labour candidate, a sitting MVP, Phil Prendergast. Um, uh, uh, she will struggle to uh, uh, to win a seat uh, and I think that there may be a strong uh, independent candidate emerging. But as of now, I think that there will be two seats going to Fine Gael, one to Fall and one possibly to uh, Sinn Fein uh, in Dublin. It's a three-seater, and it's going to be intriguing. I think uh, the fact that Brian Hayes has declared he's a candidate will, you know, more or less ensure that he'll be elected. He's a very strong candidate. He's a very high-profile, and I think he will left where he will continue where Gay Mitchell has left off. I think after that, there are maybe five or six candidates who will be vying for the other two seats. I think Fall have been wise in his choice of candidate, Mary Fitzpatrick. Uh, she has a relatively high profile. She is. She was seen as a person who was anti-Bertie Ahern. She she opposed him and took him on in his own constituency. And I think that that will do her no harm uh, amongst the electorate. And she may encourage dormant. Uh, Fianna Fáil uh, voters uh, perhaps to come back to her Um, Sinn Féin should pose a threat but their candidate Lynn Boylan has a very low profile and I just don't think at this moment in time that she will figure Paul Murphy the socialist MEP is a replacement for Joe Higgins but he has forged a relatively high uh, profile and he might just be there in the mix even though the emergence of Breed Smith as another strong left-wing candidate uh, may uh, uh, affect his chances uh, somewhat Uh, there's Eamon from the Green Party who um, even though the Green Party's lot is very low he has a very high profile and he may be in with the chance as well and the Labour Party candidate of course is Ina Marcoslo who is a sitting MEP as a replacement I think Labour will struggle uh, to retain a seat I- in Dublin so there are five or six candidates vying for two seats I think Fianna Fáil and possibly uh, the Green Party or one of the left-wing candidates, in my estimation, would have the best chance of winning that. Going over to the other uh, constituency, which is Midlands, North West, which is 15 counties, Kildare, Offaly, Midland Counties, all of Connacht and all of Ulster. I think um, that is slightly less complicated. Uh, Marie McGuinness from Fine Gael should win a seat. Uh, so should Pat the Cope Gallagher from Fianna Fáil uh, if he is to stand. I would be astonished if Sinn Féin didn't win a seat. They have a young candidate, Matt Carty. Uh, Sinn Féin have eight TDs amongst those 15 counties and uh, a lot of its strongholds in the state um, um, are there so I think Sinn Féin will win a seat and then the fourth seat will be a contest between Marion Harkin, the independent or the, third, thir- the fourth seat Marion Harkin, the independent and Jim Higgins, possibly a Fine Gael. and Ronan Mullen, who's an independent candidate he won't win a seat but he actually may decide the outcome of the fourth seat
0: And to what extent are European issues going
4: to play a role do you think in the Irish campaign at all? Um, to be quite frankly and brutally honest, I think very little. I think um, European elections in Ireland have followed the same pattern as presidential elections. They have become a form of a beauty contest where uh, ephemeral and peripheral things like posters and image and the clothes that they wear uh, become almost as important as the issues uh, that they're representing. Yep.
0: Paddy, is there anything that anybody can do about that? the fact that uh, these European
2: elections tend just not to be about european issues? um very little. i all of the the european parties are are promising us manifestos on which they're going to stand, and they're they've they're they're going to have these presidential debates. but i I have to say it's it'll be very difficult for the for the um, uh, electorate to get become engaged in that one of one of the things the uh, the professor of, of politics uh, was suggesting to the media was that we should ask candidates every time they they stand up on a platform why why should we vote for you. Uh, rather than the other candidates in, in, in European terms. What difference would it mean electing an EPP or a socialist mm. candidate and, and, and challenging us as the media to bring them back to European issues? But it'll be, it'll be a bit forced, I'm afraid. <laughs> uh, and the, the, other, the other thing I was going to say about the turnout is, is that we're lucky uh, that uh, the local elections are happening at the same time because that, that will certainly add 10 or 15 points to the um, Irish turnout.
0: Suzanne, the Commission President is not the only big European job going this summer. EU leaders will also be choosing successes for the Foreign Policy Chief, Cathy Ashton, and for the European Council President, Herman van Rompuy, who chairs the meetings of EU leaders. Enda Kenny has been tipped as a possibility for the van Rompuy job. Does he have a chance?
3: Yes, um, very much so here. I mean, the perception of Enda Kenny is, is, is very strong here in Brussels. He's extremely popular um, he's, you know, being an English language speaker uh, is, a, is a huge advantage here. I mean, people were, have been saying here, particularly with the, with the new countries coming in, who, you know, kind of more inexperienced leaders. They meet Andrew Kenny, and he's friendly. He, you know, he speaks English, um, and and they like him. He's experienced. He's very well known within the EPP. He's a very long history with the EPP. Um, so yes, he's definitely seen as a very credible candidate here. Of course, the big question is, would he be interested in it? And would he ha- be interested in the role?
4: Harry, would he be? Um, I remember back in 2004 uh, Bertie Hearn was uh, saying they were very interested in him as possible. I think President of the Commission at the time when José Manuel Barroso uh, uh, was given the crown. Um, but ultimately, uh, I don't think he was asked, but he, he, he decided that he would opt for domestic politics. And all my instincts tell me that Enda Kenny will do the same. I think he's most comfortable being Taoiseach of Ireland. He has uh, almost an unprecedented uh, opportunity of being a, a Fine Gael Taoiseach who leads a second successive government. And I think if he is uh, presented with the choice between doing that and becoming president of, um, of the council, I think that he will choose the former, that he will stay domestic rather than going foreign. Uh,
0: finally, Paddy, uh, Jean-Claude Juncker, Giefer Hofstadt and Martin Schulz have, both, have all three been around the European scene for ages. Would any of them make a good European Commission president?
2: I think that all of them are competent and uh, would would, uh, would be good t- uh, from a technocratic point of view. Um, I think the interesting thing is, is the politicisation process. So it really... Um, There are people who who would argue quite strongly that in order to to acquire more popular legitimacy, the the commission has has got to show that it is not just a bunch of civil servants but a... a, um, a political body that understands voters and responds to voters and and therefore your choice might depend on what your political allegiance is in terms of 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 all of those candidates
0: uh paddy smith thank you and harry mcgee and suzanne lynch in brussels thank you very much and that's all from this edition of Worldview. from producer sinead o'shea sound engineer robert sullivan and from me dennis staunton goodbye